Listener Production. Craig Foster was Australia's 419th Socceroo and 40th captain of our national men's soccer side. He's since had an illustrious career as a sports analyst and broadcaster. This is what it's about, the tension and the passion. And no one wants to go home in this crowd right now, Les. Even the Croatians are singing. It's an amazing moment in Australian sport. You can, how can you top this? It's only World Cups that can do this. Craig Foster has always been passionate about and dedicated to social justice. Fairness is a part of his DNA. He has campaigned for an Australian republic, better support services for the homeless, Indigenous rights and self-determination, and for action to prevent dangerous climate change. But today, I wanted to talk to Craig about his life after football, particularly his advocacy for refugees and asylum seekers, and the role that this issue may, or may not, play in the upcoming federal election. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, I'll be talking to Bron for The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first, here is my conversation with the quite incredible Craig Foster. Craig Foster, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. It's so lovely to have you. Thank you. It's my pleasure to chat to you. Let's start at the very beginning. I want to know two things from you. When you were a kid... Was soccer part of your world? And when you were a kid, was a sense of social justice part of your upbringing? Yeah, they both were. You know, I come from Lismore. Everyone knows it now infamously because it was underwater recently. You know, it had worst floods that we've seen in Australian history. Um, And people are still suffering up there. So, you know, big shout out to everyone back up home. Uh, Soccer or football, as we call it, was the biggest, most numerous sport in that regional area. In fact, it is around much of the country. You know, as everyone knows, all the kids play it basically. And uh, regional areas are no different. In fact, probably a little bit more so. When they would go on or get into their late teens, you know, many kids would typically cross over into other sports. So a lot of kids played football as I did. I loved it. In that area as well, certainly in those times, and I think still we saw during the floods in Lismore, in Ballina, in uh, Woodburn, in, in all of these regional northern rivers and other areas in southern Queensland, we saw this sense of community. You know, incredibly, people like genuinely just jumping in their little tinnies and going out in the middle of the night with a torch and actually picking up people who they didn't know just because it's part they're part of their own community. I'm not, you know, that doesn't happen everywhere in the world, but it's certainly a big part of regional Australia. That's for sure in my experience in, and in my upbringing. And so that's kind of infused all of my social sensibilities, if you like, you know, my sense of social justice, my sense of, you know, just equality between people everywhere, you know, the concept of global citizenry, you know, about that we should treat everyone equally to ourselves, uh, whether that's across racial lines, uh, gender lines, age lines, uh, sexuality lines, or any of those things. I do feel at a personal level that most Australians have that very strong sense of security. There are tendencies within some communities to have that fear of the other at a more global or national level. At a local level, there's that really strong sense of, oh, the guy next door, he's a good bloke, you know, we lend him his my lawnmower or whatever. Talk to me about that sense of community growing up. Was that something your parents gave you or was that something you started to find for yourself? 
I think both, you know, they were both highly engaged in the local community. You know, my father was very involved in a range of sports and, you know, would sit on the committees and the boards and, you know, and, and the idea was that, you know, they came off farms up there, you know, in a place called Wine Wine, one of the most beautiful area, which is a lot of hobby farms now. And so a lot of people are coming out of the city and going up into that, into the hinterland kind of just uh, in behind, you know, Bangalore and in, in that, in that beautiful rainforest area. Um, and so, in those times, you know, with my grandparents, for example, and therefore my father's upbringing, that was survival. Mm. You know, uh, he had a dairy farm and someone across the road might have had more agriculture and someone down the road had the skills to be able to fix the tractor and uh, and someone else, you know, so he was making milk and so he would trade that with someone else just down the road. So all the families knew each other uh, and, you know, and they built this you know, very genuine sense of community because without each other, they actually couldn't survive, particularly in crises. Let me ask you about what it was like as a kid wanting to be a footballer, because certainly if I think about my own school experience, right, there were the kids in our grade who were particularly good at a sport. But as soon as you started to reach that level of going, okay, this kid's really good, they started to almost divide their brain into the two futures. Like there's one Mm. future where I make it, in this sport and it becomes my career. And then there's the version where that doesn't happen for me. Was that an exercise you had to go through young? Not really, but I understand and accept what you're saying. I think that's probably better the way you're describing it. So, (laughs) you know, what we want to see with young athletes, in fact, I think um, all young people today is that they become more rounded people and that they have the confidence and the ability, and not everyone does have the ability, and we're talking about opportunity there, which is, again, about social justice, but they have the opportunity to pursue our passions, and that is surely the most important thing in life. As long as our passions doesn't hurt anyone, you know, uh, supports others, uh, and hopefully does good in the world, uh, and that's fine, but uh, equally at the same time, to, you know, have a rounded education and by that, I mean, not just math, science and others, but to be able to think critically, to understand society, to understand, you know, some basics of politics and become an active citizen. And many of those things I missed out on because what sport tends to be is a very, uh, you know, siloed existence. People expect athletes to be highly focused, which they are, but also not to concentrate too much on external things. And I think even in my own career, perhaps that even cost me at times in terms of the overall output, the outcome that I was able to generate in my career, because I was always at least as interested in things outside of football as I was football. But many of the people that I played with, you know, for instance, when I was a Socceroo, I was supporting the referendum in the late 90s with Malcolm Turnbull and I was speaking at Town Hall and things. And I was involved in Indigenous programs, Indigenous rights and other things. Whereas at that time, most of my teammates were just at home stretching getting ready for the next game, you know, controlling their diet, you know, and that kind of was their whole world. Uh, I was never like that. I always thought there was much, a much richer experience and football was just a part of that. That's all. So today, you know, all young athletes are encouraged to combine. So to grow their mind at the same time and grow as a person at the same time as they grow as an athlete. And that wasn't always the case. Mm. And I am going to use your generous explanation there as an excuse to the people listening who are going to be so mad at me when I literally skip over your football career because I want to talk about your activism and your advocacy. (laughs) So to everyone at home, I expect the letters and I won't reply, (laughs) but I accept that I'm being uh, an abominable uh, football fan by doing this. Let's shoot forward to the end of your career. 
one of the most bizarre things about being a sports person is that you retire when you have a whole life ahead of you. You would have seen the point of retirement coming. How did you conceptualize that as a, you know, not someone who was in their 60s or 70s looking to retire, but as a young guy looking to retire and have a whole other career? I've ne- I was never concerned by it. Um, I knew that it was coming. You know, I'd, I'd had a bunch of injuries as most players do in the kind of football codes and, and athletes do right across the board. Um, and so I knew it would come at some point. Um, it was just that my transition was much smoother than many others because when I was playing, you know, and I sit on in on the other side now in the media yeah. and so I can see how it works. But at that time what would happen is I was playing or I was captaining some teams and then I had to go and speak on various media outlets as you do as an athlete. Those media outlets started to kind of identify to say, look, this guy can mount an argument yeah. and can speak on camera. And therefore you start getting asked more and more to do it. And in fact, when I was playing, I was in Adelaide and Channel 10 in Adelaide asked me to come and actually do some pieces, you know, and and put together on the other side of the camera, uh, which was interesting. So it was kind of inevitable that I was going to move into that. And before I retired, but I was certainly in the last year or two of my career, we had the World Cup in 2002 in Japan, Korea, which was in Australia's time zone, essentially, you know, in Asia. And I was asked by SBS to come and work on that World Cup. And it went so well that they said, look, we'd like you to, to sign you, you know, full time. And in fact, they created a six hour long show, the longest football show at that time in the world. Uh, and it was just a happy circumstance for me to move straight from that into and just retire. So it was, it was really seamless. So I, you know, I have, I understand the constraints around it, the concerns around it can be really difficult for people. I can't say that it was for me, however. You're someone who's clearly fought for what you believe in for a long time, you know, even when you were playing football, as you say, you were involved in the campaign for Australia to become a republic at that time. Look, you know, a good 20 years on now, we're still struggling on that one. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about when you became involved in advocacy issues around supporting people who are asylum seekers and claiming asylum in Australia. Yeah, so when I was playing, I was an advocate or I was an activist, but I was an activist I put my energy into uh, Indigenous rights, opportunity for young people, males and females, to play sport and other things. And that also included some refugees. And I started to get a concept of what, what was going on. But I was also a union leader within the sports space. And then, and after I retired, I was CEO of our players' union, that's Socceroos, yep. Matildas, and A League W. And then, latterly, I was the chair. So that's at that time when I was playing, I was committed to changing the sport of football from inside, from the athlete perspective, because we always believe that if we could change football, the multicultural game, we could change Australia. That by, you know, we, we, we travel around the world and we see the way that other nations respond to the game of football, how it brings people together, how it's, a, you know, it is, is one of the most genuine global communities that exists uh, probably the most outside of perhaps music and that Australia really wasn't participating in it. You know, we weren't successful in the international field. Um, the game wasn't so well accepted here. It was very much seen as the migrant game, which, which of course, is a good thing. But, um, you know, that's part of Australia's kind of, um, you know, migration story. So my, my job at that time was pushing to bring all that to life. We are only one week away from a federal election, Craig, and one of the telling things I think in this space is that we have two major parties who are both supporters of mandatory detention. How do you see the debate playing out after this election when it comes to the politics around refugees? 
Yeah, difficult question. Um, firstly, I would say that both parties are pretty much the same, and that shows you where Australia's at. You know, successive Labor governments, for example, whether it was Gillard, Rudd, uh, and now Albanese as the opposition leader and aspiring prime minister, are in the same situation that the country is in where they feel unable to take any further steps you know, in humanising refugees or in breaking down this whole infrastructure, basically of torture, which is what it has been. So they don't just support mandatory detention, they support offshore detention and they support boat turnbacks, which is about just kind of turning people around and saying rack off. So we've legislated away, you know, all of our obligations under the Refugee Convention and that is of, you know, deep concern to me. We've also harmed a lot of people. The reason I say that is because In recent elections, the issue of refugees has been used to try to wedge another side of politics, to try and turn the Australian population against anyone running for office, to say, oh, they're soft on these people and we're going to be swamped, you know, like like post-Second World War when they said, oh, well, you know, we've got to populate or perish. It's the same cycle that's been going on for over 100 years. It's just that refugees and asylum seekers are the latest. Uh, victims. And that's what I'm kind of been trying to explain to Australians in the last couple of months, including at my National Press Club uh, speech. You know, I've been advocating for asylum seekers and refugees in particular because they were still imprisoned, still interned and in, in a deep state of torment. Now we've got the vast majority out. And whilst it'll take a year or more, those remaining on Nauru, several hundred people and PNG can go to New Zealand. Yeah. So now I think is the time to have a different discussion about why did this occur, uh, where are we at, and why does this keep happening? And so the reason I give that context is because that's where politics is at the moment. I think media has a big part to play in that. There's no doubt that News Limited have had a big part in this. They have a lot of questions to answer in Australia in terms of, you know, where the whole population is, you know, where our social sensibilities, whether it's on, um, you know, COVID misinformation, climate denialism, or indeed on xenophobia. And the reality is what both parties believe. Look, I think uh, for Scott Morrison, it's ideological. You know, he just doesn't like them. Uh, For Labor, I would say at the moment, they're too far to the right on this policy because that's where Australia is at the moment. And we have to have a discussion. Whoever gets in, we have to have a discussion post-election as Australians and quite independently of the government, because the governments are largely either running on what they believe or on what they believe Australians are capable of agreeing to. So it's about us now. It's about what do we believe in, how do we want to treat people, and what are our expectations of the next government in terms of people who are fleeing and seeking asylum. One of the frustrating things, I think, for a lot of us when it comes to the community conversation in this space is there's still this notion of fairness and a queue and the idea of an orderly migration program that doesn't allow for the reality that being a refugee is not an orderly experience. It's a horrific one. In your press club speech, you said there is no queue, only a human lottery. What do you say to people you come across in the community, friends, family, who make that queue in inverted commas argument to you? How, How do you respond to that? One of the, if you like, evil genius elements of the demonization of asylum seekers and refugees within the Australian cultural context has been the use of the term fairness against them. What you would naturally expect is that Australians would have said, if not, and in my view, if not improperly turned elsewhere, they would have naturally said, 
well, of course, you know, we haven't had to seek asylum. We haven't had to flee out of Australia. And fairness means providing people who have to flee an opportunity to press their case. And indeed, if proven to be a refugee, to be given safe harbour. And we've done that uh, for generations. However, what's happened is governments in particular and media have infused the public mind with the concept that unless you sit in a, a camp somewhere for often for decades or, or more, some people have been in refugee camps in different parts of the world for up to 20 years. Unless you do that, and then Australia says, come, you're not somehow being fair. So there was this awful narrative perpetrated on asylum seekers and refugees who ended up on Manus and Nauru that they had somehow jumped the process. They had somehow circumvented the process Uh, which is just completely false. But once it's put in the public mind, it's very dangerous. It's very damaging. It actually has killed people. And it's very hard to dismantle. It's going to take a longer discussion with Australia around this issue and a sane discussion that's not based on xenophobia and politics. Mm. The problem is border politics all around the world has been driving, you know, a a conservative agenda for a very long time. And you you now see the UK wanting to send people to Rwanda. You've had right-wing parties right across Scandinavia who are much more attuned to human rights and social justice than many political systems in, in other areas of the world. And you've seen in France and elsewhere, you know, the rise of this border politics mm. uh, where people are using the displacement of other humans for their own political purpose to turn local populations against them. We're not alone in that, but it has been particularly effective here. So I'll talk to people and they will just keep saying the same thing. Oh, yeah, but, you know, they shouldn't have been here and they should have just stayed and da da So, you know, you have to try and use analogies, I guess. And perhaps the best one is this. Australia was 20 years in Afghanistan. And so we were right at the heart of, you know, what had occurred there, uh, that conflict that we engaged in with the US and others. And we were also involved in the withdrawal. We allowed, of course, through withdrawing, we allowed the Taliban to come in. Afghanistan's now in very significant um, humanitarian crisis in terms of poverty and and, uh, famine and all these things. And we did evacuate some people, clearly not enough. However, Australians then are quite proud of the fact, or at least uh, hold up the fact that we evacuate around four and a half thousand people. And then we have, after that, through firm, you know, effective advocacy from the Afghan Australian diaspora and, and supporters, uh, another 13,000. And then there was another announcement on budget night of about another 16,000. So in total, we'll resettle around 31,000 Afghanis. Now that's fantastic. It's really wonderful because that is, a, that is the highest number uh, that we've taken of any particular group. So the questions are, why Afghanis and not others? You know, and clearly the answer is because we were actively involved in it, so Australians feel a sense of guilt. Okay, that's fine. But what about the conflicts that we weren't involved in? Those people are still fleeing. I think now it's about joining the dots for Australians because we've never had this public discussion because the media hasn't allowed it. And it's just to say, that's really good. We did a good job there. But what about these people over here? It's a bit like what happened with Hakeem Al-Arabi when I went to help him. And Australians were very proud of helping to get him out, and they did. And then it was about, okay, well, let's join the dots from them to the Manus guys because they're all refugees. It's just about joining those. But the popular media makes that extremely difficult because if they want to demonise a group, then that's very, very effective and it's very difficult to uh, fight against. But when you come to this concept of, you know, improper displacement, 
The question is for Australians then, okay, if we're now taking those 31,000 Afghans on a reasonably short period of time, you know, that crisis happened and we've, we've accepted them within, you know, that was last August. So, you know, well within a year and it will take them another year to arrive. But that, that was quite quick. Do you understand that that is at least 31,000 other people who've been waiting in camps perhaps for 10 years? That's what people don't connect. And they say, well, these people have done it the right way. Well, hang on a minute. In another alternate world where we weren't involved in Afghanistan, those 31,000 would be in camps and they'd likely be there for 15 years. And then if there's no opportunity to get out of those camps, they might, like I would, and do whatever they had to do to get the hell out and try and find a life in another country. I would do it. And I, I put my hand up to every Australian and say, I would do it. And it wouldn't take me 15 years. I can tell you that. And I would say to every Australian, it wouldn't take you 15 years either. I can guarantee you, right? Because I know what we're like. So we'd go. So they go. And then they end up in Australia. And then it's convenient for politicians to not explain the system, to keep the system opaque, but just say, well, that's improper what they're doing. We, you know, we are just taking the other ones. So it is a lottery. And what happens is the UNHCR rightly, when these crises happen, when, it, when a famine happens, when a conflict happens, look what happens with the Ukrainians. Up to 5 million people have to flee. The UN Refugee Agency has to drop everything, put their resources into Ukraine and try and encourage countries to take them. That's fine. But the other people are still sitting in the camps. So my message to Australia is that this is a very significant global issue. You know, we have contributed a tremendous amount to the demise of the global norms of seeking asylum. And we're now exporting that. Now UK are copying us. Uh, other countries, I think even Denmark, are talking about doing likewise with Rwanda. So we've helped to change this so that more people are actually being harmed and people don't have a pathway to safety anymore. It's time that we turned that around and said, okay, this is an escalating issue. More people are being displaced through climate and we need to get on top of this. We need to look at what is a sane system and uh, how can we contribute to a better global pathway for everyone and for every country to contribute and be part of it. But we can't do that with only people who are in camps because those who have to flee, they have to get somewhere. That is the human reality. Some of those people who have had to flee are the Afghani national women's soccer team. They're now in Melbourne in unofficial exile, I suppose. They were rescued from Kabul because of the fears of the reprisals of the Taliban around women's participation in sport. I understand you've had the opportunity to watch the team play. Oh, it's extraordinary. They're a really, really important team. I was involved in the evacuation and, and securing of visas for that team uh, from the Australian government, you know, along with many, many people, but including Zali Stegall, the independent MP who, who did a fabulous job and her staff. And then they, they came to Australia. Um, the vast majority of them settled in Melbourne. There are a couple in Sydney who recently we've been able to get into a sports high school here so that they'll be in the football program, which is wonderful. The team itself, you know, of course, took, you know, a period of time of months to just settle into Melbourne, you know, they get caseworkers working with them on, you know, whatever it is they need, you know, their, their Medicare, their bank accounts, their, uh, you know, English literacy and starting to study and all of these things, uh, like any newly arrived 
uh, refugees. And and then some at some point, probably a couple of months ago, they called me and said, look, we'd like to play again. And we didn't know if they were going to play again or if they wanted to play together or if this experience kind of drove them apart. I mean, who knows? And they called to say, Craig, can you find us a club to play in? But we want to stay together and, and continue to try and play also as the Afghan women's national team, even whilst we are accepted by Australia. And I said, look, I think that's an incredibly important message because they are a symbol each time they play in Australia of the right of women everywhere and girls to play sport. And, uh, of course, the Taliban now have withdrawn that right from girls and from all females in Afghanistan. So they inspire many Afghan women both back home and all around the world. But they are also, um, you know, a symbol of gender equality in sport, which is really important. So I don't support uh, FIFA, for example, who now are allowing the male Afghan team to play in international competition at the same time that the Taliban or the, the, the current Afghan government, which is the Taliban, are refusing the right for women to play in international competition. So in my view, Afghanistan per se should be immediately suspended from international competition. And I think that Australia, I was asked this question recently, if Australia goes into the next World Cup cycle and we have to play against Afghanistan, for example, in the first round of qualification, we should refuse to play even at the cost of three points or perhaps even World Cup appearance. We should say in Australia, we believe in gender equality across the board and that means sport. And therefore, if your country does not provide opportunity for women to play in the same way as men, then we will not play against you. So this team is incredibly important. They're now a part of Melbourne Victory Football Club. That's really important. I think, pretty sure that they're the only refugee team actually housed within a professional football club in the world. Many professional football clubs or sporting teams would have a program for refugees, but this is an actual team of refugees playing as Melbourne Victory with the Afghan flag on the back of their shirt. They're playing as the Afghan women's national team in Melbourne Victory shirts. There had to be a collaboration between two levels of the sport. And thankfully they were able to bring it to life. Incredibly important because what through doing that, what we're saying is we're not asking you to go and play in community grassroots. We are saying to you, we value you so highly as refugees, as women, and as fellow members of our sport on three levels that we want to give you a fully professional environment. They're first. They do. They weren't professional in Afghanistan. So we think that that's a great message to Australia and to the world, and but particularly domestically, to say it's it, football should be saying to the rest of the country, this is a group of Afghan refugee women. It just so happens they play sport. We're giving them the very best that we can possibly provide. And that's what we want to see for every other refugee in the country. So I'm so pleased that's happening. Craig, thank you so much for your advocacy, for living your values and for spending some time with me on The Weekend Briefing. Okay, my pleasure. That's it for my conversation with Craig Foster. What a remarkable human being. Don't go away because another remarkable human being, Bron, is jumping into the hot seat and we are going to be doing The Weekend List. Bron is here. It is weekend list time. And Bron, I realised just this morning that it has been roughly 100 years since I read an actual book for pleasure. And as a result, I haven't recommended any books on the weekend list. I'm hoping you're going to bring this up for me. You're going to go highbrow for us. 
I hate to disappoint you. Both my recommendations are, I would, I would call them lowbrow, but I do love them. Um, <laughs> so this first one is The Kardashians, which is the new series. It's premiering on Disney+. Plus. There's been a few episodes out now. It's very similar to Keeping Up With The Kardashians, but it shows a different side of the family and it's been beautifully shot. It is looks stunning imagery-wise. And if you're into celebrity pop culture, you will fall in love with it. I think it falls into the category of if you love it, you love it, and if you hate it, you know you're going to hate it. So whatever you feel right now is probably how you're going to feel after you watch the show. I don't think they're going to be changing any minds, but I am enjoying it. It's been really fun. I'm excited for this new chapter. And I've been in this game long enough to know that you just have to be yourself. They're going to like you for who you are, not what you wear. I'm just kidding, obviously. Hey, there's got to be something to that formula given just how many seasons there have been, right? I'm personally not a fan, but all credit to the people who are watching. I am also going to recommend something just a little bit silly, but also a little bit sweet. I don't know if you've seen Old Enough, which is currently streaming on Netflix. It looks very cute. I haven't seen it yet, but it keeps recommending it to me. I will get onto it this weekend. Okay. So it is brilliant. It is a Japanese television show where they follow little kids, like really little, like between age sort of three and five, who are doing their first errand outside the home. So they're given a task and it often involves them walking a long distance or crossing roads or doing something around the house, which at least for me was surprising that a small child would be allowed to do. The episodes are only about 10 minutes. The kids are adorable and remarkably responsible. And I... I don't know, completely fell in love with it as a slightly neurotic, clearly helicopter parent who'd never let her kids uh, do this. And, And my child's almost seven now. It's so sweet. It's honestly so sweet, especially when these kids get distracted, Bron, from their actual task and they just like follow a bird or a leaf or something for a while and don't do their job. It looks adorable. Um, My next one, I'm keeping it in the reality TV theme. It's the new season of Big Brother, which has just started this week. It's on Channel 7. I'm watching it on Catch Up on 7 Plus. So it's a mix of old Big Brother royalty from seasons past to new contestants as well. I know some people don't love the new format, which is kind of in the same category of Survivor, where they do challenges and they vote each other out instead of the public. But I think with the addition of the old contestants who we know from years ago, who we've fallen in love with, we have the background of, we're only a couple episodes in, but it's looking promising so far. It just reminds me of the old times, the nostalgia of Big Brother, which I know we all loved back in the day. I don't think I've watched Big Brother since it was Sarah Marie doing the bum dads. So maybe I need to go back. Maybe I need to return. In the meantime, folks, I have been watching ABC series Tomorrow Tonight. It's a really interesting premise. It's hosted by Annabelle Crabb. So how can you go wrong? And she is joined every week by Adam Lior and Charlie Pickering. And then they have two other guests with them as well. And together they unpick a particular theme and they imagine how something is going to change into the future. So for example, I was on a 
recent episode, this week's episode, in fact, I mean, come on, if you can't plug yourself on a show that you host. And it was all about memory. And so we were talking about memory and sharing stories of memory, but we were also delving into some hypotheticals. For example, if there was a tablet invented that meant that you could erase the last 24 hours of your memory, would you want to possess that tablet? Would you want to be allowed to take such a tablet to erase a particularly traumatic memory or a memory of pain, for example. I thoroughly enjoyed being part of the show and watching all of the other episodes has been genuinely fun but also made me think about things in a slightly different way. So highly recommend Tomorrow Tonight, which is on the ABC on Wednesday nights, or you can stream it on iview because who watches things live anymore? I have no problem surveilling my kid. Right. But my husband has ethics. Oh, that is is, awkward. Which is complex and a problem in our marriage. While you're spying on your kid, you establish that your kid has been spying inappropriately and literally on the girl next door. Are you going to raise that with your kid and blow your own cover? Yes. But hang on, how is your son invading her privacy worse than you invading your son's privacy? Uh, Because the rules don't apply to me because I'm mum. That's it for today's weekend briefing. Thank you so much for being our guests. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode, then you can download the listener app now. That is where we live. Otherwise, you can find us on any podcast app. You should subscribe, you should rate, you should review. That will help other people to find the briefing podcast. We will be back bright and early Monday morning where Tom and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.